Great to see you all. This is the day the Lord has made. We're rejoicing and glad in it. So glad you're here. And if you've joined us online today, welcome to you. Good morning. It's great to see you. We are in the middle of a series called This I Believe. It's the foundations of our faith, what it means to be a Christian. And we're learning the basics and essentials of our faith. We have begun each of these services with reciting together the Apostles' Creed. The Apostles' Creed is about 17 centuries old and has been universally embraced by every tribe and tradition of the Christian movement for 2,000 years. And so we, uh, we celebrate this creed. It's called the Apostles' Creed because it has 12 points uh, and 12 apo- original apostles and so therefore the name. There's a phrase uh, near the, the end of the creed that still causes people a little concern or question Uh, We believe in the Holy Catholic Church, and sometimes that's confused with the Roman Catholic Church, and it's not intended to do that. The word Catholic is simply a word that can be otherwise translated universal. So when we say, I believe in the Holy Catholic Church, we're saying, I believe in the Holy Universal Church, that is the church in all places at all times. And so we believe in the big church, everyone who believes in Jesus. That's the import of that statement. So uh, if you're able, let me invite you to stand. We're going to recite the creed together as we begin, and then I'll read our scripture today from Psalm 1. Are you ready? Let's do it together. I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven, is seated at the right hand of the Father, and will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Now, if you'll remain standing for today's scripture text from the book of Psalms, Psalm 1, and I want to read the first three verses. Blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked, or stand in the way that sinners take, or sit in the company of mockers. Lots of mockers in today's culture. But those who delight is in the law of the Lord and who meditates on his law day and night. That person is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season, and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever they do prospers. Now, for all of you aspiring young preachers, there's the three-point sermon there. We know that we're going to persist like, like a tree planted by water. We know we're going to be fruitful, and we know we're going to prosper. And there's a, there's a nice sermon for you. And this is a wonderful promise as we incline ourselves to the law of God, the words of God. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you so much. As Pastor Glenn mentioned, this is World Communion Sunday. And communion is one of the two ordinances that Jesus installed for us to celebrate. One, of course, is water baptism, which he participated in. And then, of course, on the night of the betrayal... He rehearsed bread and wine, symbolic of the broken body and shed blood of his sacrifice on the cross for our sins. 
it is done in remembrance. And so we have this important reference point and this sacred act of Holy Communion. The other important factor, aspect of Holy Communion, of course, is that it is done in community. Holy Communion in community, the family of God, the church celebrates this together. And so this meal, which we, we partake, however small it may be in, in substance, it is powerful in spiritual implication. And so at the end of the service today, we'll be remembering the work of Jesus on our behalf and also celebrating that we can do that together, not only in this place today, but all over the world today as men and women who follow Jesus in their life. So I hope that'll be meaningful to you. Today, I want to, in the context of the, of the, the theme of the week, being a disciple of Jesus, I've, I've rehearsed with you that the word disciple literally translated means a learner. So we are students of Jesus, we are followers of Jesus, his will and his ways, and one of the best ways that we can understand who Jesus is and his expectations for us is through the Bible, this Holy Scripture. And so I want to just emphasize today the Bible, why and how we should engage in a better understanding of it. So I hope it's meaningful and inspiring to you. Let me just begin by saying this, I'll put this on the screen, that the Bible is the most popular book of all time. It's uh, preeminent among all literature. Uh, to date, there are approximately 7 billion, with, that's with a B, 7 billion copies of the Bible that has been printed and distributed around the world. This year, 44 million more Bibles will be printed and distributed around the world. The next most uh, sold book, if you will, or most printed book in history was Mao Zedong's little red book. Mao Zedong was the communist leader of China in the last century. Uh, he actually mandated by law, punishable by death, anyone who didn't read his red book. And it got up to 900 million. 900 million compared to 7 billion. Um, next is Webster's Dictionary at 100 million. Shakespeare has been translated into 60 languages. The Bible has been translated into over 2,000 languages and counting. Um, the New York Times does not put the Bible on its bestseller list simply because it would always be first. This week, number one. Next week, number one. The following week, number one. Number one, number one, number one. They would never be another number one bestseller. All you'd ever see in the New York Times is the number two bestseller because the Bible would always be number one, forever number one. The, so the Bible is preeminent in circulation. It is the most popular book in all of history. Now, here's the second thing. It's the most powerful book in the world. The Bible's preeminent in influence. Uh, there is no way to really comprehend the amount of resources that are created every year around the whole concept of the Bible. Dictionaries, lexicons, commentaries, encyclopedias, study aids, classroom curriculums. It's like a river that flows, uh, always out of its banks, a river that flows around this subject. There are people giving their lives right now around the globe translating the Bible into every known language on the earth. While some of these talking heads on cable news or cable talk shows are mocking the scripture and impugning the scripture and questioning 
the Christian scripture and suggesting that it's outdated, that it's no longer relevant, that, that, that Christianity is a hateful religion, blah, 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 this mockery that happens every day in the world. In spite of all of that, the Bible is being translated by people literally risking their lives today, this moment, in cultures around the world so that the peoples of that land can have the scripture in their own language. And this goes on and on every day, week after week, month after month, forever. The Bible is preeminent among all the religious writings of the world, so much so that even secular scholars appreciate the beauty and the depth, if you will, the simplicity of the Bible. And compared to other religious books like the Book of Mormon or the Quran, placing such writings next to the Bible is an unworthy exercise. The Bible, the Bible in comparison in terms of its influence and its power is like, is like comparing the Sears Tower, this towering building in Chicago, Illinois, uh, and all the other religious writings in the world like a two-story walk-up. The Bible is powerful. It also has been preserved from attack. You have to ask with any kind of level of critical thinking, how has the Bible sustained so much criticism over the years? How how has it survived? I mean, you raise your children just like I have to love God and your grandchildren to revere his word. And at every turn, and especially true now in our modern culture, in the educational journey of your children, some teacher or professor will stand up and start attacking the integrity of the Bible. You won't hear so-called scholars attack the Quran or the Book of Mormon, and you have to wonder why. Why is that? Well, the reason essentially is because they're not worthy of assault. They're not worth fighting over. But when it comes to the Bible, everyone in the world, it seems, is either trying to lift it up or tear it down. Almost makes you wonder if there might be some larger cosmic reality or some spiritual battle going on around it, around this great debate over the reliability of the scriptures. Let me put a statement on the screen, see if you agree with it. Why is the Bible the most powerful book in the world? Because it has the power to change lives. It's true. It's a powerful book. It's changed my life. I know many of your lives. And we also can say it's the most precious book. This is a beautiful story that comes from a a, a personal friend of mine. When the Soviet Union imploded in 1989 and all of Eastern Europe opened up, the Iron Curtain fell, Eastern Europe opened to the gospel for the first time in, in decades after Soviet rule there. And in Kiev, Ukraine, Kiev and Ukraine have been in the news a lot lately, of course, but those uh, many years ago, a good friend of mine seized the moment, went to Kiev, rented a big uh, auditorium there and had a mass gospel crusade. And at the end of that crusade, as he was preaching the gospel to many people there in Ukraine, an older woman, she was on two crutches. She was like a classic babushka, you know, she had the scarf over her head and wrapped around her face. And she comes forward because at the end of the crusade, my friend was distributing Bibles. And she took a Bible that day clutched it to her chest and began to rock back and forth and began to weep and began to moan and began to mumble some words. And my friend asked the interpreter, what is she saying? And the interpreter now was in tears. And she said that this 70-year-old woman was saying, 80 years, 80 years since I've held a Bible. 
80 years. And it was a life-moving experience. Why is the Bible so precious? Man attacks the Bible. Time attacks the Bible. It never seems to cease. Why does the Bible cease to exist? Why doesn't its influence and popularity, why, did, why doesn't it wane or completely dissolve? Many, many atheists and other antagonists in history have declared, uh, you know, in X number of years, no one will even know that a Bible ever existed. And so we've heard these voices in history. Why is the Bible so popular? Why is it so powerful? Why is it so precious? Jesus said it this way in Matthew 4. Man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. The reason that the influence of the Bible is so great is because it's God's book. The Bible says that heaven and earth will pass away, but my word will never pass away. God himself is standing behind his book, and nothing is going to alter its priority. You may be a skeptic within the sound of my voice today. You may be personally determined to see the influence of the scripture continue to decline in our culture and around the world. You may have all kinds of aspirations that way. You're fighting a losing battle. This is God's book, and nothing is going to stop him from disseminating his word. Jesus is teaching us about man shall not live on bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. He's, not, he's, he's simply reminding us that material things alone do not fulfill. Material things are good. Bread is good. Many other things are good. But material things are not enough, not enough to bring ultimate fulfillment. So we have to ask the question, uh, and we've tried to answer these questions during this series. Who is Jesus? Why did he die? How can we be sure of our faith? How can we have a relationship with him? And of course, we, we have a relationship with Jesus by talking to him in prayer and by understanding his word, the Holy Scriptures. Let me just say a few things then about the Bible and specifically about its quality in our life. Number one, it's a manual for life. God has spoken to us through his son, Jesus Christ. Look on the screen, if you will, at Hebrews chapter 1. In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom he made the universe. Now, listen, listen to me. Are you listening? Christianity is a revealed faith. It's been revealed to us. There's been a revelation. Christianity is a revealed faith. We cannot find, find out about God unless God actually reveals himself to us. God has, as it turns out, revealed himself to us through the person of his son, Jesus Christ. So he, Jesus, is God's ultimate revelation. So the main way we know about Jesus is through God's revelation according to the Bible. Now we know that there are other ways that God has revealed himself to us. For example, the created order, the, the creation around us is an indication. If you look at the screen at Romans 1, it says, for since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that men are without excuse. So if you've never heard anything about God or ever read the Bible or heard the gospel or know if Jesus ever existed or not, nature itself indicates to us that there must be some designer out there. Psalm 19 says, the heavens declare the glory of God. You only have to look around to see the power of God in nature. And of course, God reveals himself individually and personally to us through the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit may speak to us, lead us, direct us. 
One of the most significant verses in the scripture about the importance of God's word is 2 Timothy chapter 3. Look at it with me. All scripture is God-breathed. Interesting phrase, isn't it? God-breathed or inspired and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, training in righteousness so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. That phrase, God-breathed, comes from a, a Greek word from the original language of the New Testament. And it's a word, a compound word, and it's described as theopanoustos. Now, we can sort this word out fairly easily. Theo, of course, means God. Theology is the study of God. So theo is clear. And this panoustos comes from a root, pneumus, or, pneu, or pneumatic. Uh, the English word is translated pneumatic. We understand what that is. All of our bicycles have pneumatic tires, meaning they're full of air. And so you can interpret that God-breathed or God-inspired. It means air or breath or wind. And so it literally translates, transliterates as God-breathed. In other words, the writer is saying that Scripture is God-speaking, God-breathing. And, of course, God used human agents to write the Bible. The Bible is 100% the work of human beings. But it's also 100% inspired by God. This is a high view of the inspiration of the Bible, and it has been held almost universally worldwide by the church throughout the ages. For example, Irenaeus, who lived approximately 150 years after Jesus, he said, and I quote, the scriptures are perfect in as much as they have God as their author. Likewise, the reformers, we get to the 16th century and the Protestant Reformation and Martin Luther at the head of that movement, and Luther said, and I quote, scripture which has never erred. Today, for example, a reference is from the Roman Catholic official view is enshrined in Vatican II. The scriptures are, and I quote, written under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, have God as their author and are therefore without error. Now, remember the Bible was written over a period of approximately 1,500 years by at least 40 different authors. These authors included kings and scholars and philosophers and fishermen and poets, statesmen, historians, and doctors. They wrote different types of literature. The Bible includes history and poetry and prophecy and just ordinary letters. Now, this doesn't mean there are no difficulties in the Bible. Let me just, let me just make this clear. Believing in the inspiration of the scripture doesn't mean you have to take your brain off and set it on a shelf and just become naively, you know, accepting of anything that you see. Indeed, the Bible encourages us to use all of the resources we have at our disposal as thoughtful, intelligent, critically thinking people, and that we should bring to bear all of the capacity we have in the study and the implications of the scripture. And so we do. And let me just remind you that the the brightest minds in history who have, who have carefully studied the original languages of the text and have been theologically trained and devoted their lives to an under better understanding of the scripture and what it means have been brought to bear. And there, is a, there are similar conclusions that can be drawn. But let me just remind us that there are difficulties. For example, there are moral and historical difficulties and some apparent contradictions. And when it comes to contradictions, this is, a, this is an excuse that, that you hear occasionally. Well, there, the Bible contradicts itself all the time. I can't name one. 
These are not typically people who have studied the scripture enough to know what the contradictions might be. But the contradiction exists uh, here and there. They are, in my view, typically minor contradictions. For example, one author may have three people at a scene that's described in one of the gospels, for example, and one of the other gospel writers may only have two people included in in that particular scene. And so you say, well, the Bible contradicts itself. Well, again, it's, it's open to careful consideration. You read some of the things in the Old Testament and you wonder, wow, that's, that's pretty dramatic. That's pretty wild. That's out there. You know, how can that be? Some of the difficulties can, of course, be explained because of different contexts or languages or culture of the author at the time. Uh, context is always essential to interpreting, interpreting the, the scripture. So it may be a different period of history. You know, some people, for example, want, like to overlay Christian values onto King David, for example, and all the military exploits that he engaged in during his life. You read some of these accounts, and you go, man, that is, that is violent. That is bloody. That is, that, is, that is a mess, you know. I thought David was a good Christian man. <laughs> no. David lived a thousand years before Jesus. David didn't know anything about Jesus and didn't know anything about Christian values. He's operating, he's operating in the Bronze Age. And doing the best he can to live a life honorable to God. He's got the, as much information as he has, and he's living his life. And you can put it in that context. Another thing, uh, for example, is it's hard to reconcile the love of God and the suffering in the world. This is a problem that most of us have to deal with. Yet every Christian believes in the love of God. And so therefore we should seek an understanding of the problem of suffering in the context or framework of God's love. In a similar way, we need to hold on to the belief in the inspiration of the Bible and then try to understand the difficult passages within that context. If we believe that this has an inspired book, that God has breathed into these authors and that it's, it's meaningful text to us, then we have to then, then embrace the idea of inspiration. And if there's inspiration, then there's also authority. And so we hang on to the inspiration of the Bible. I do. I believe it's an inspired book. And if we accept that the Bible is inspired by God, then its authority must follow. It must have its place in our lives. It must carry the weight that it deserves in our lives. And if it is God's word, then it must be our supreme authority for both what we believe and how we live. The Bible then should be our authority in all matters of creed and conduct. And so you're looking at a guy who believes the Bible to be true, reliable, inspired, authoritative. And so the Bible becomes a manual for us. We, we find out what God's word has to say about what's right and about what's wrong. We discover God's views about work or pressure or singleness or marriage or giving or forgiving or parenting. It's a manual for life. Many people in the secular culture react, I don't want this rule book, too restrictive. Living according to the Bible, take the fun out of life. Um, But that's not really true. Ask the question, does the Bible really take away our freedom? Is it so narrow, so exclusive, so restrictive that, you know, we can't live with it anymore? Or does it, in fact, give us freedom? Let me ask you this question. What is a life without structure or boundaries or limitations? What is a person without boundaries? What what is a person who lives their life where anything goes? What happens to that life? 
We've built a number of buildings here on our campus over the years, and Beth and I have built two homes over the course of our lives together. And here's what I've observed uh, about construction. I've learned that I've learned that anytime there's a question, anytime there's a problem, anytime there's a unique challenge on a building site, people always reach for the blueprints. Always. And the reason why that's true is because nothing good is built without a blueprint. If you ask a builder if it would be good or advisable to build without a blueprint, they'd laugh at you. Look, I want to build a 40,000 square foot building that that will be a youth facility and also a place where we worship for our church, 40,000 square feet. I've scribbled some things out here on some paper. Is that enough to get started on that? And folks will look at you and go, well, you're crazy. You're nuts. You can't do that. Because it's universally understood that nothing good is built without a blueprint. Let me put it in this context. Everyone here understands high school basketball. Let me just create this scenario. Let's just imagine for a moment this, uh, this coming winter when the boys' high school basketball county tournament is played and we've gotten all the way to the final game. And, and this year we just speculate the two teams are Yorktown and Delta. Yorktown is playing Delta in the county tournament final. Now, right now, everyone's feeling stress. People are bowing up. You're wondering if the guy next to you that you've been very loving and cordial toward, which side they're on. And that'll matter to you. What if you attended that county basket, boys basketball final and the PA guy comes on at the, after the teams have warmed up and they say something like this. In order for the boys and all the fans to really enjoy the competition, we've removed all of the court boundaries and told the referees to stay home. In the spirit of competition and good sportsmanship and open-mindedness, we'll let the boys call their own fouls. We tossed a coin, and the white shirts get the ball first. Enjoy the game. How many of you know that the thin veneer of civilization that exists would would soon deteriorate And there would be bloodshed. First, there would be blood on the court, and then there would be blood in the stands. How quickly would that happen? Five minutes, six, maybe tops, maybe in the first 30 seconds. It just wouldn't take long. And you would say, should we try that? You'd go, that's nuts. What, are you crazy? You can't play the game without rules. You can't have fairness or freedom without boundaries and limitations, without any effective authority, no referees, what are you talking about? People will be confused, people will be hurt. Everyone knows if you just have a free-for-all that no one will reach their potential, nor appreciate any kind of victorious, we won, you didn't win, you cheater. I mean, it would just be, it would be chaos, it would be riot. They'd probably burn down the gym. Here's what we think. We think God's word is our authority. God's word is like a mirror in our lives. You, you study God's words, you see rules, limitations, and boundaries. You, you, you see the, the guardrails around which you live your life, and you go, well, you know, maybe I shouldn't be doing that. Maybe these aren't the people I should be hanging with. 
Maybe these aren't the kind of decisions I should be making. And we all have this propensity, don't we, to kind of go the wrong direction. We have this tendency to do the wrong thing. It comes naturally. to I have it. Do you have it? The tendency just to mess it up somehow. I have that. Do you have it? Say it out loud if you do. I have it. Say it again. I have it. I have that. We, we, we all have got issues. We all got baggage. But the Bible says, thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. I get clarity. I get direction. I get assurance about the steps I'm taking in life. The Bible is God's rule book. And if we play within the rules, there's freedom and joy. Contrast that, that when we break the rules, people get hurt. God didn't say, do not murder in order to ruin our enjoyment in life. He didn't say, do not commit adultery because he's a killjoy. Here's what we know. God doesn't want people to get hurt. People says, God says that I hate divorce. And people interpret that meaning God's anger toward people who have been divorced. That's not the point. God hates divorce because it hurts people. And he doesn't want people to be hurt. When people leave their wives or husbands and children to commit adultery, lives get messed up. Every time that happens. So the Bible is God's revelation of his will for his people. The more we discover his will and put into practice his plan, the freer and the more productive and fruitful we become. That's where an amen goes in the sermon. It's true. It's absolutely true. So the Bible is a manual for life. Let me tell you, second of all, what it is. It's a love letter from God. The, the Bible is a manual and also a love letter from God. My wife Beth and I were separated for months at a time during our years of college. She went to Miami of Ohio in Oxford, Ohio, and I went to Valparaiso University up in the northwest corner, up in the region of Indiana. This is going to shock some of you young people. Now listen to this. This is something pretty sobering. Uh, at the time, we had no cell phones, no texting, no emails. No blogging, no Facebook, no Instagram, none of that. Telephone calls were actually too expensive to be practical. Let me explain. We were, re- we were reduced to trying to make long-distance calls, and long-distance calls cost extra money. I know, it's shocking. You have to believe me. So we were reduced to writing words on paper. Think of this. Putting it in an envelope affixing a stamp to it, putting it in the mail, and three or four days later, it would arrive. We were writing love letters to each other. Now, of course, I wrote many more love letters to Beth than she wrote to me. And that makes perfect sense, I'm sure, to you. It was the most warm and wonderful feeling, though, to receive a letter from your sweetheart who was physically absent from you. And the reason it was so warm and wonderful is because of the relationship, because it was from the person you love. I was interested to know what she was saying, what she was doing, what she was going through. It was, it was wonderful to receive that. Look at John chapter 5 on the screen with me. You diligently study the scriptures because you think that by them you possess eternal life. These are the scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me to have life. So here's what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying that the Bible in itself is not it. 
The Bible is only so wonderful and exciting because it is about Jesus. Are you following this? It helps us come into a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. The scripture is the revelation of Jesus to us. The most amazing thing about all of this is that the revelation we find in the scripture helps us and enhances our opportunity to fall more deeply in love with the Jesus who has given his life for us. The relationship, the primary relationship that we have in life is one that the Bible points us to. We don't worship the Bible. We worship the God who allowed the Bible to reveal to us this wonderful opportunity to be in relationship with his son, Jesus. This is a powerful thing. And it's a wonderful thing. So the Bible's a love letter from God to us. God's speaking to us. For example, those who are not Christians in the world, he first brings faith to those. Romans 10, 17, if you look at that, faith comes from hearing the message, and the message is heard through the word of Christ. This is very powerful. Martin Luther, the Protestant Revolution, put it, the Bible is alive, it speaks to me, it has feet, it runs after me, it has hands, it lays hold of me. The Bible is alive and active and transformative. And so those of us who are not yet Christians, the Bible reveals to us the way to find a meaningful relationship with Jesus. I said it last week, the central idea, the quintessential meaning of Christianity, if you're a Christian person in the world, it simply means that you have discovered a personal relationship with God through his son, Jesus Christ. That's Christianity. That's what it means. There it is. And those who are Christians, the Bible is replete with hundreds and hundreds of promises like you can become like Jesus. You can have joy and peace in the midst of a storm. You can have guidance in life. Every step you take, you can have health and healing. You can have defense against spiritual attack. You can have power in your life to overcome the challenges of life. You can be cleansed from the mistakes you've made in life. These are all the promises that God's love letter to us makes. It's the most extraordinary thing. And that leads us to the third and the last thing I want to mention today. I've tried to inspire you to think, I need to get more engaged in the Bible. That's the idea. Now I want to just teach you very simply how to do that. And anyone can do what I'm about to explain. There are three points. One is time, the second is place, and the third is method. Time, place, method. You've all heard the, this, this axiomatic thing, time is money. You know, time is money. And we all kind of get that. How about this statement? Money is power. Time is life. Money is power. Okay. Time is life. The phrase time is life makes the most sense to people who have less of it than folks who have more of it or so they perceive. Time is life. So all I'm saying is you need to take time. Take time to study the scripture, to read the Bible. And let me just make this simple appeal. I encourage you, I challenge you, this is your homework assignment, five minutes. Five minutes every day reading the Bible. Not six, not 10, just five. Some of you right now are going, five minutes, you can't, what are you talking, that's terrible, that's, what's wrong with you? Five minutes The second is place. Find a place. Maybe it's in your house. Maybe it's somewhere outside of your house. But here's the qualifier. Find a place that's quiet. Quiet enough 
for you to think without distraction. Find a place. It may be your favorite chair. You may have to go to the basement. At work, you may have to find a storage closet. Someplace quiet, just for five minutes. A time and a place. And then the third thing is a method. Here's what you do. Now, you may be a seasoned veteran of the, of the Bible, and you have some reading plan that you're going through this year, and that's all great and fine. But maybe you're just beginning to understand the Bible a bit, and you want to know more. Here's what I recommend. Go to the New Testament. Start in the Gospel of John, fourth book of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Start John, chapter 1, verse 1. John's Gospel. Go there. Pick out a time. Find your place. Sit down with your Bible, open it up, and just whisper this prayer. Just say, God, speak to me through your word. Speak to me through your word. And then in your five minutes, you start reading. Just start reading. And as soon as something grabs you, gets your attention, raises your curiosity, something just you read, you just go, huh. Ask, ask yourself this. What does it say? What does it mean? How can I apply it to my life? For example, you're in John chapter 3. You get to verse 16. You're reading along. For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. And you, you stop and you go, whoa, that sounds, that sounds important. And so you ask the three questions. What does it say? And you, just, and you read it again. For God so loved, he gave his son, believe in him, eternal life. What does it mean? We know what it says. Now, what does it mean? Well, it means God loves the world. That maybe that's me too. It means God loves me. He sent his son to die for me, gave his son for me. My belief in him can secure my eternal life. That's what it means. So how do I apply what does it say? What does it mean? Then the last question is, how do I apply this to my life? I guess I should believe in Jesus. Take a step to believe. And now you've become part of the family. See how easy that is? That only took 90 seconds. So enjoy the last three and a half minutes you have that you normally would use reading. Five minutes, you do that five minutes every day. Listen to me you will become a student of the Bible and, and you will understand in ways that most of the world do not the will and ways of God. Because the Bible is a powerful book and will transform your life. Matthew 20, uh, chapter 7, verse 24, last scripture, therefore everyone who hears these words of mine puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. Isn't that good? One more, one more quote, D.L. Moody. The Bible was not given to increase our knowledge. It was given to change lives. Isn't that encouraging? So I recommend to you the Bible. Amen. Do you have your communion elements handy? Would you grab those now? If you need, if you need the elements, you didn't get them uh, so far, just lift a hand. We'll, someone will... Help you with that? Anyone need the elements? I think we're, I think we're good. I mentioned earlier that there are two primary emphases around this sacred act of Holy Communion 
And one is, of course, to remember what Jesus has done for us in his broken body and shed blood on the cross for the remission of our sins. And we do this to remember. The second important aspect of Holy Communion has to do with the fact that we do this meal together in the family of God, the church. And it's a communion, a community. And, and so we have this means of grace, the work of the Spirit of God, active among us together as we celebrate. And not just in this room or if you're watching online, but everywhere in the world today on this World Communion Sunday, millions and millions and millions of people remembering and celebrating the family of God in the world. So on the night Jesus was betrayed, he took bread with his disciples and he broke the bread and he said, this is my body which is broken for you. And so if you'll just tear that bottom piece off, take out the little wafer and partake. Thanks be to God. Likewise, the same night he took the cup, he raised it, he blessed it. He said, brethren, this represents my blood, the blood of a new covenant poured out for the remission of the sins of the world. He said, as often as you drink of this cup, remember what I have done for you. Now, as you tear the top off of the cup, be careful not to try to tear all of it off. You might jostle and drop some just back far enough that you can partake. Are you ready? Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. Now would you pause just to pray with me for a moment? We know in the celebration of this sacrament, this Holy Communion, that the grace of God is poured out toward us. So what I'd like for you to do right now is think of some area of your life, some need you have, or maybe it's the need of someone you love. And I want you to simply pray that God's grace will come to meet that need. Maybe it's a physical need, a a need for healing. Maybe it's a relational need. Maybe it's something to do with your finances or some other circumstance in the world or in your life and just simply and personally invite God's grace to come to that place, to that need and do that right now. Lord, we receive the grace you offer And we thank you today for this wonderful work of your spirit. As we remember the sacrificial death of Jesus on our behalf and celebrate the opportunity to be together as a family, as the church in this place, in this time, to say, yes, we trust in you. We believe in you. And we give you thanks. In Jesus' name. And everyone said... Amen. All right, would you stand with us?